word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. If you don't know what the Day of Red Doves is, turn around immediately. We are going through chapter 31, which is the end of that chapter. Big things ahead. So, there you go. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Death and Dismemberment, a podcast about moments in books wherein you are so emotionally battered that you have to put the book down for six months and return to it later. Think of us as your sad, sad friends hanging out at a fictional character's funeral. I don't know what the Dawn of Red Doves is. Um, should we Should we record this later? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus. Dawn of Red Doves. <laughs> 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 fucking uh <laughs> no it was uh, fucking d- devastating <laughs> it was devastating it's, it's 10 pages of just <laughs> ah <laughs> um, all right oh god crossland right before this told me that we need to somehow figure out how to not talk about that chapter the entire time so um i'm gonna pretend it doesn't exist for a little while and yeah hope that works that's that's the best way to do this i think so today is our fifth episode covering dark age by pierce brown and we are going to tackle chapters 26 through 31 and like we kind of promised we're going to try to keep things in their section as much as possible (laughs) so we can kind of get all the nuance out of the chapters and not just talk about the huge fucking moment that happened we won't abide by that I promise you it won't happen, but we'll try. We'll try really hard. Um, So, uh, but first let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having? I've got something from the namesake of our horsey friend, the Virginia mint julep. It is. (laughs) So I don't know how it differs from a regular mint julep, but this is actually like straight out of a recipe book. This is my uh, cocktail Bible that I've got. So, is one tablespoon of simple syrup muddled with nine mint leaves. I don't know if nine is important, but it called for it, and I have a leaf or a mint plant, so I took nine. Um, filled the glass with crushed ice, like to the brim. I used a. Uh, it's effectively just a highball on a stem. It's a really thin, tall beer glass, um, but it calls for a highball. This is effectively the same thing. So fill that to the brim with crushed ice. Then pour in three ounces of bourbon. I used Basil Hayden's Kentucky Straight Bourbon. Um, Stir that for a little bit until some of the ice dilutes and settles. Melts, I guess. Top it with more crushed ice. I used four of those really, really big ice cubes, like the the, Hmm. large cubes, and uh, just crushed those and put them in there. I used four, four fucking ice cubes in this little glass. Um. And then stir that until a layer of frost forms. And then it says to serve it like wrapped in a napkin, but I didn't do that because I wanted to drink it <laughs> and I didn't have a napkin. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, then garnished it with a sprig of mint. So it's really good, man. I love, I love a good mint julep, but this one turned out really, really good. Yeah. Mint juleps are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, following that up. I actually have a couple beers because you'll you'll find out why. 
I have Star Cloud by Modern Times, which is a hazy okay. Citra IPA. It is uh, something I wanted. I, I opened and decided to drink for the show because I wanted to talk about a beer that I don't particularly like, but wanted to talk about the notes and flavors and uh, and points just subjectively. Um, or yeah, subjective. What's the one where it's not like influenced by my own opinion? Objectively, I don't know. Wait, your your opinion. Your subjective opinion, versus objective. Which subjective would be your opinion? Subjective would would be my opinion. And my opinion yes. is I don't like this beer, but I will talk about just the the straight up traits of the beer, and it might apply to something that you might like. So I'll talk about it. It's supposed to be a hazy IPA. It doesn't explicitly call out New England, but those are kind of interconnected traits. So I, that's what I assumed. Modern Times is a California brewery. They are very, very well known for mm-hmm. California in general is very known for West Coast IPAs, hence the term West Coast IPA, which is a lot more bitter, a lot less fruit forward. Hops are added earlier in the boil, so you get a lot more of the the acid or the alpha acids converting into iso alpha acids, which is what causes bitterness. Mm-hmm. This beer, I don't know what happened to it. It tastes sweet, almost like it wasn't fully fermented, but it gives us the final gravity of the beer. It's 1.013, which is a fairly, fairly like reduced level of, of sugar. So it should be pretty well fermented, but it just, it it almost tastes like wort. Like, uh, like you've tasted Hmm. wort before, right? Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. It it almost just tastes like that. Um, wort for those of you who don't brew beer or know like the crazy inner workings of beer like we do is the precursor it's it's what you produce before fermenting it and turning it into into beer but it, it tastes like dry hopped wort which isn't super pleasant but it's a little bit bitter it's a lot of bit sweet and um let, let me taste it one more time while i'm talking about it um it, it just lingers like there, there's a sort of bitterness in the back of your tongue that just lingers for a while not my thing. Could be somebody's. I don't know. But uh, that's Star Cloud by Modern Times. And I, hmm. I just figured that'd be something different because we haven't really talked about beers that we don't like so much on the show very often. Yeah. That said, I did talk about one that I didn't like. And I remembered this. And this is why I chose this beer for my second one. Lost in Translation, which is a double dry hop hazy IPA, staying with that theme, by Talking Waters Brewery, which... I think the only beer where it was kind of a miss on the show was also by Talking Waters. But this one is really, really good. Less fruity than a lot of hazies that you'll find, but um, done in a really well-balanced way. This is out of a small town called Montevideo, Minnesota. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but they, they've, been, they've been putting out some, some killer stuff. So there was that one beer that I had on the show that wasn't, wasn't a hit, but everything else I've had by them has been really, really good. Cool. So sounds awesome. That's that's my little uh, little rant for a while. Uh, Crossland, what are you drinking? I am having something. So I, I originally I had said last week that I was going to do something with the uh, old punk whiskey for this show, and I had forgotten that this was also the uh, day of Red Doves. So I wanted to do something that was kind of themed around that. So I'm putting off the old punk whiskey cocktail that I have planned for next week's episode. That will be a great one that I'm very excited to share. This week, though, I'm having a daiquiri of Red Doves, which is really just it's it's mostly like make a regular daiquiri, right? So three ounces of rum, two ounces of lime, one ounce simple syrup, basically just a three to one ratio. And then 
uh, what I did is shook that up and then took a just a spoon, like the little swizzle stick spoon of uh, cherry concentrate. And I just drizzled it on top and then just gave it a after after it had settled beneath kind of the layer. I just gave it a quick stir just to uh, actually mingle the flavors. But I got a photo of it where it looked really cool with just the the kind of like drizzle just on top of the, the surface. But it is awesome like it's just got like just a just a hint of cherry because it's you know again it's not a precise science it was very very little but so it's just got that hint otherwise pretty much daiquiri daiquiri and uh it's great awesome sounds good uh, to, to follow that up because today is all about black eyes cherries and red shit i am having a black cherry white claw what the fuck dude <laughs> it's the last one <laughs> It's the last one, and then we'll be back to the beers. But like, I I was like, there's one left. I'll drink it for the show. It fits in with the the, the stuff. Oh, uh, I I think I don't think you had it on words and whiskey, did you? No, I did. You, or was it on symposium? On both. Oh, you had it on both. Okay. Yeah, I, I the the first time was last week when I made the Tim Ferriss margarita, and you were like, you should put the your you should use the white claw in the margarita. And I was like, yep, you're right. Oh, good idea. Yep. And then, <laughs> and then you did that on did that the on show symposium. that I host on our Patreon, PJ Symposium of Media and Whimsy, where we talked yeah. about Wrath of, Wrath Man, of Man, the newest uh, Guy Ritchie film at length with our good friend Tim Pearson. And then he would, me. Uh, he would hate me if he heard me say that. Tim Pearson. He, he won't hear that for months. He won't. That's true. He's way behind. <laughs> way behind. And then, yeah, so the black cherry just made sense. I was just like, I'm just going to use the last one as my follow up with uh, this do uh, do cherry stuff. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, I say that entirely sarcastically, but uh, let's keep going. <laughs> yes. So with that, we'll move into last week's predictions. So <laughs> right off the bat, we have a prediction that you made all the way back in Iron Gold that we rolled over um, between. And the prediction was, who is the syndicate queen? You said Dido. And it is, in fact, not Dido. No, is it, it's PJ? not Dido. It's Lilith. Mm. Oh, man. Who I okay. did... I did call that she's still alive. You did. You That's did gotta count for something. Morningstar, you're like, but we didn't see her die. So I don't know if I trust it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. We didn't we didn't pull the feet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh man. All right. Um, so you drink for that? Yep. Uh next one is what mess has the goblin created? And you said where where, uh, where is that? Uh oh, there is it. <laughs> There it is. He launched a small uh, war vessel with some of his loyal howlers to collect the children himself without the aid of the Republic. That is quite wrong. He, uh, he made a mess of, of a man. He made a mess of a man. <laughs> the Duke of Heads. Duke of Heads no longer has heads. Yep. Or uh, any flesh. And also, like, he blew up a lot of other shit, like six factories, 900 thorns, a yeah, duchess a that we, like, don't know. Yeah, like... He and the Howlers fucked up some people, and he lost, like, three Howlers or something like that. Like, a small number, don't, and, like, definitely felt inside of the small legion of the Howlers, but, oof. Yeah. Um, what's, what's really funny is that, ultimately, you're very close to, like, what, with, what Victra, right? We get a little bit of a description of what Victra is doing, which is she's headed to Mars on a vessel, and so we assume, you know. Yeah. She's doing, basically, what you thought Severo is doing. Right. Yep. Cool. So you drink for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is do Pax and Electra help Ephraim train the squigglies? <laughs> you said. I have to giggle every time. 
Every time I see their, I can't even pronounce what it is. What it's because I don't remember Skuggies. Yeah. Uh, I or Scoogie. I replace it with Squigglies every time. I love it. It's ridiculous. Uh, yep. You said. <laughs> I said. Uh, no. What a stupid proposition. Why would you ever even ask that? Uh, these are the most <laughs> important children in the galaxy, and if they die, F is fucked. This is wrong. This is entirely wrong. <laughs> it's not Pax entirely like- wrong. Pax helps Ephraim, but he doesn't necessarily like help in the teachings. He more advises Ephraim on something to do. Yeah. But it's and still also, wrong. I'm still wrong. And translates for Ephraim. Yeah. Totally. That's a drink for you. Yep. Uh, I just, just took it. And that's it for the predictions for this week. There, that was a couple. Like, the couple couple of good payoffs. Yeah. So, with that, we uh, we get into the chapters of, uh, of this week's uh, reading of uh, Death and Dismemberment. <laughs> So, chapter 26, Virginia, the Goblin's Prey. We open up the chapter with exactly what the Goblin has done, namely killed the Duke of Heads, like we said, the chief assassin of the Syndicate. The the Scarlet Frogs are really what, like, do it for me, personally, having, like, just swam through that brackish blood, as it's described. I just, I, I love that description, and I really enjoy the way that Virginia um, references it. And the more that I think about the fact that I just said that I enjoyed it and wasn't, like, sickened by it, means that maybe something's wrong in my head. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, it may be a little bit unsettling, but I, I didn't think it was like just that disturbing. What I, I, I'm curious though, do you think the frogs were actually red, or do you think they were stained red by the blood? Because I don't uh, it's seen- it, I, I don't think Scarlet was capitalized, so it's not like the title of the name of the frog. But no, I, I totally think it was. Uh, because they swam through the blood. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think that that's kind of the combination of things. That's also where we get like all of the the different descriptions of all of the different like things that he's done to this man. Like absolutely dismembered him in every way, shape, so, and form. One of, body one of my parts favorite, hanging on the walls. One of my favorite comments uh it's right on the first page uh amplifying the image i find a minor imperfections in the cut severo's razor he's the only howler that uses a serrated blade doesn't look like or doesn't make much of a difference when the edge is so sharp but i but he thinks it looks scarier he's right i loved it i loved that Mm -hmm. it's it's a nice little touch you know Mm mm-hmm Yep. Everyone has their their like little touches. Um, you know, Darrow with of course pulling it into the sling blade, Virginia with her backup razor, and Thraxa with her fucking hammer, and Severo with his serrated serrated razor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they they had mentioned it a couple times mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, it's cool to cool to see the uh, the payoff on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. If that counts For as sure. payoff, yeah, and. I mean, Severo, man, it's there. Severo and Victra are out for blood to get Electra back. This description that happens here is like so heartwarming, but terrifying in terms of like the the lengths at which they're they're obviously going. And I think in part, Virginia is totally right. There is a way to do this. But like cleaving through everyone with his serrated razor isn't the greatest solution. I mean, it is a solution, though, and um, it does at the same time, add some more terror to this the myth of Severo if he needed any. He didn't, but it maintains yes. it. <laughs> As though Severo needed more on his, to add to the myth, but you're right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, what a killing spree he's been on. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a bloodbath. Literally at a, at a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bloodbath for some little froggies. Aww. Oh. I- I also love, like, after we leave kind of the Duke of Head scene, I love the background that we get on Adrius as Mustang heads into her office. 
talking about the puzzles and the mazes and the dangers that are planted throughout the Citadel should Virginia, you know, require them, of course. I, I love that the scene kind of melds and changes as Holiday comes in with good news and a white box saying that they found him. And we can kind of, you know, guess. Uh, but what you make of the the sort of idea of the layout of the Citadel and all the various things there, as well as the kind of little flashbacks we got into Virginia's childhood? Yeah, I, I thought... Calling back to the puzzles that she talked about a lot in um, Golden Sun, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's when they really talk about the puzzles. I don't think they really talk anywhere else. But I, I thought it was a great addition. It kind of shows her ability to still hold fondness over her brother and her father while simultaneously convent, uh, condemning who they were and what they stood for and what they did. Just being able to parse out the different aspects of them in order to find find positives and negatives and and not completely throw away their entire being and the entire memories of them just because of the atrocities they committed. Being able to see like, oh, they made me who I am and they made me a better person based on showing me what not to do and also showing me what to do in certain situations. It was, I don't know. I, I felt like the fact that she has those prominently displayed in, in her office, even though they're hidden to a certain expect or to a certain extent when nobody's there. Ah, yeah. Yeah, she hides them when when somebody comes in, but the fact that they're there and the fact that she still holds something from her family means that she hasn't completely written them off. And clearly we know she can parse out those different parts of them. So I I thought it was a good depth of character for her. Yeah, it's it. It's such a kind of like like you said, it's it's very refreshing because she is able to kind of simultaneously confront her family. But then also she still like remembers the fond things, the fond moments that they have and, you know, the different like lessons that she's gained and learned. It's also it also points to another part of her character that you would feel like would almost be missing where she for so long in the original trilogy, one of her biggest focuses were was on her family and maintaining her family and keeping them safe in whatever context that was, you know, not necessarily killing them. But, you know, especially when it came to her dad, that was that was a concern in Golden Sun, um, which is ultimately why she kind of aligned the way that she did. Right. When she was, you know, on Octavia's side, technically, to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. So I, I really like it. It's very brief. It's only a single page and it does feed into a lot of the kind of context of what happens at the end of this reading, uh, the the day. <laughs> uh, but the, the scene surrounding like the conflict in the street is just a great moment that shows kind of the rising tide that we see culminate. Uh, we get like a lot of the different leaders of the different movements speaking in the streets like Dancer, uh, Zan, Arch Imperator Zan, and a couple of other folks. Uh, Rolo is being um, broadcast. Do, do you remember Rolo? Uh, no, not off the top So of he, he was the red, I think, in Morningstar. Oh, that was who, him. Yep. Yeah. Who He's worked the red for the, the Julii? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And okay. he um, he is the governor of Mars. So does he have legs that, now? Uh, or arms? Did he lose his legs? No. He was okay. he was missing a, an arm or a hand or something. I feel like that's and right. They I think they, he, they asked yeah. like why he didn't just get like body modification stuff, and they're like that's super fucking expensive. Like why would you even ask that? Yes, I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, curious, curious if he's got it now. Probably yeah. if he's the governor. Right. I mean, probably probably has a little bit of money, but makes sense, obviously, that he's in, you know, in charge of uh, the arch governor of Mars. Makes sense. 
but yeah what what did you think about the rest of the visuals and all the all the people and stuff uh, it, it was described as a river of people wasn't it something like that something like that yeah a river of marching people um mm-hmm. what it, whatever the actual terminology used was i thought it was a really great visual um reminded me of um the was it tibet that had all the marches not tibet um was it tibet like are you thinking like ago, Tiananmen Square? Year? Oh, okay. I think it was Tibet. Could have been Hong Kong. Could have been Hong Kong. I can't remember. But um, somebody, like some group of people marching against the Chinese government with millions, millions and millions and millions of people filling the street. And that's what the visual I got of just a mass of people completely, completely filling the, the streets and moving as one. It was It was a cool visual. I'm assuming you're looking up what I'm talking about. Yeah, Hong Kong. It was Hong Kong. It was Hong Kong. Um, okay. Yep. The anti-extradition law amendment bill. Yep. Um, That's it. Which, yeah, it looks like, like you said, a river or a sea of people. Um, if you just Google the Hong Kong 2019 marches, it uh, definitely paints a picture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Feel, obviously we see that. bad that I forgot. Like, that, well, that I couldn't distinguish which one it was. Because, I mean, Tibet has a lot of. It, the it, Chinese government's so fucked. That true. It's completely believable that it's a whole host of different people marching against them. Well, so. they don't even acknowledge the fact that like Taiwan is a country. Oh, Taiwan was the other one that like there's just so much like China. What what the fuck China? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah, well I, hear me right now. I am against the Chinese government. Our silly Take the little bold stance is going to be and say that I don't agree with the Chinese government. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so <laughs> catching the Duke of Hands here, though, is fantastic. Of course, that's the reason that we're we're kind of moving to the safe house uh, at the moment in the scene and the world building that happens here, like talking about Hysperia, among other locations, the program that created this custom rose that we see in front of us, uh, all of the kind of different, I don't know, like combination of like what the society did and then also just things that we we've never heard before ever gotten close to the the like little comment about splinters and theodora um her kind of like brilliance in the scene i i just loved it all i thought it it was fantastic and did some of the best world building in just such a small section on for pinks as a color theodora's awesome i love her character first of all um everything set up so well in this in this scene but one of the coolest things for me was the description of the hormonal defense mechanisms. Oh yeah, and how that's just kind of part of their their being, and for whatever reason, his are super fucking strong. Like to the point that Holiday just starts like I imagine like a cartoon, like knees up, just kind of floating and bobbing with like hearts like popping off the the top of her head. yeah and then like the it was it was like a salt that they used to like bring it down smelling salt yeah snap that under her nose and made her smell it yeah and like the when when virginia actually walks into this happens just a smidge later but when virginia actually like walks into the room and her own like we get a little bit of background to say that like gold's showing that golds are actually bred differently and like actually have different components to them as well where like there is a response that her body has which causes her to be nauseous because she knows that she's being duped by these pheromones yeah like what so cool wouldn't it have been easier to just 
negate it. But I guess Maybe. having having a negative response to it tells you that it's happening, but you're not affected by it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the Zolodone that Ephraim had. Oh, yeah, right. Where it just, he didn't fucking notice. <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't feel things. So, like, he didn't have, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's really that's also a really interesting read to go back and like look at some of the scenes in Iron Gold where the Duke of Hands and Ephraim were interacting, where the Duke probably thought that he was selling him on stuff a lot more and easier, you know, well, because of the so, pheromones. So what I think is kind of interesting in that is that Ephraim was trying to seduce him as a way of getting what he wanted, whereas the entire time the Duke was assuming that he was under a spell and like that's what he was going for anyway. Totally. Right. Exactly. So there's like a weird now that we've we've got a little bit more context in terms of, you know, what the Duke is. It's um, it's it makes it more interesting. What Again, the Duke like, is. You say it like he's not a person, Crossland. Well, you know, he's like not a bio- person anymore. No, he's kind of a he's a shell of a person now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this? And I was like, oh, yeah, the memory wipe. Never mind. Yeah, Psycho Spike got him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So good. Um, I cannot help but mention, though, this line um, that is one of the most oft quoted lines in relation to Mustang, which is like both so great and so unfortunate. It's a fan fan favorite. And this feels like a first draft line where you're like, fuck, yeah, there's no way I'm fucking this one up like this stays in the final draft for sure. But uh, Mustang says, please, this horse rides for only one man. (laughs) God, I I cringed when I read it. Honestly, <laughs> like, well, I mean, it's it's like a Virginia joke of humor, like you know. But it's like she's not good at also, it. She's not good at humor. <laughs> it it also felt like the most distinctly like I, I'm sure you haven't watched any Pierce Brown interviews at this point because not you're not done all. with the series yet. But mm-hmm. like, it feels like the most distinctly his voice line in I think almost the entire series, like. This feels like a first draft line, and I love it for that. Like, it, it yeah. is just such a good... It feels very much in the same vein as the uh, by Felicia line from <laughs> Golden Sun. Morning. Yeah, yeah. Or it was, was it Morningstar? It was, it was Morningstar. Morning, it was Morningstar, yeah. It, it yeah. felt very much in that same vein. Um, <laughs> it was funny. Like, don't get me wrong. It's it's funny. But mm-hmm. it, it felt out of place. I don't know. You know, I feel like every every so often Pierce has to like just make sure to interject humor so that we remember that we can breathe between pages or chapters, you know? Yeah. So he like forces us to breathe by making us laugh. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's how this book feels to me personally. Like this book is a, a personal attack. <laughs> Especially after this week. Oh fuck. Um <laughs> Jeez, yeah, but the uh, horsey girl, like you said, it's uh, it's just funny. So I really enjoyed in this read, and this is something that I don't think we've talked a whole lot about because I'm I just kind of have a deluge of uh, classics knowledge. But one of the things that is more common in fiction is if you're if you are to like reference something that's outside of the fiction, you might provide context via another character, right? So like another like a character would say something, and then the other character might. Um, clue into it a little bit so that you you the reader who might not know the story that they're talking about can follow along very common you know like if if you don't know something about like 
If you didn't know the story of Zeus, one character might bring up Zeus and then you'd be like, ah, yeah, throwing lightnings down from cloud and judging people for seemingly no reason while fucking everyone. It's like, oh, okay, I got a good picture of Zeus right there from that character, like, making that comment. Pierce often doesn't do that with his references, right? They're very kind of oblique for the most part, you know? Like, if you know, you know. Especially in the one that you're going to bring up, because I know you're going to bring it up because I'm reading the notes right in front of me. Um <laughs> Most of them are rooted in common words that most people, myself included, didn't know that they were based on historical people. So like it, it's sure, it's an yeah. easy it's an easy jump to understand what he's talking about. Just based on the names him themselves. Okay. Okay, well so so here's my question. Had you never heard of Narcissus before? Never. Okay. Wow, so you are adding a layer of interest to this. So you were able to follow this without any additional context. Entirely, absolutely. Okay, perfect. So that, you actually, like, literally made my point for me, which is yeah. fantastic. Um, yep. Which, I all that I was saying is that I think a lot of time, other times, like, Pierce is almost appealing to the eagle-eyed reader, if that makes sense, like the one who knows these kind of things. But this is such a direct reference that it's it's very clear. Like, like he explains what it is, just in case, like, you might not know. And it's not that he doesn't not do that often. It's just that he doesn't do it as often as he does the other stuff. It's He, he plants more seeds that, mm-hmm. you know, you yourself have to root out and figure figure out. But I really appreciated this one because it was very, very clear. Um, yeah. If you didn't know, I guess I also have the luxury of having you explain to me all of the historical references that he makes. So, um. yeah, again, it, this is this is interesting because obviously, like we are going to read other authors in, in relatively soon. And we've already read Blake Crouch and whatnot. Um, but oh, his... I haven't I haven't yet posted the picture of the books that I bought for the next series. Should I mm. do that? Um, or are we keeping that secret at 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 this point? No, we had a we had a poll. We had, we had a poll. Next. We had we had good responses to the poll. Um, maybe we'll announce it at the end of the episode. Okay. And yeah, I and then we can post photos or whatever else. Um, but yeah, I I mean, like, not every other author writes this way, right? I mean, everyone every writer writes differently, very differently. More often than not. Most of the writers that I've spent a lot of time enjoying and reading tend to do, like I said, like a brief explainer of whatever it is without like being too heavy handed. Um, Whereas Pierce doesn't explain. But if you know, you gain context Mm -hmm. on everything. Like it's it's just like opening a opening a door and, and being able to see past it where a bunch of people can't see anything or, you know, like looking at a colorblind test and being able to see the number in the middle when other people can't yep i've never I, I seen the number in the middle. talking about yeah <laughs> i've never seen the numbers guys <laughs> I, don't, I don't know <laughs> every One single our... color blindness is lost <laughs> yeah. on crossland all all of them except for the black and white one adam our buddy bought me a shirt an achievement undershirt <laughs> it has the logo on the inside of a colorblind <laughs> dot test and i hate it but I wear it frequently. It's an inside well, it's joke. It's funny to all of us also. You knew me. It's not like I go around explaining that I'm colorblind. Um, well, they can see? tell if you wear the outfit you wore today. Oh, yeah. Um, fuck yeah. <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I wore to the gym today was not suitable <laughs> for most people's. I, I, 
<laughs> Fuck. All right. Side tangent. Walk out there just because we have to laugh a little this bit. Wasn't this wasn't already a side tangent. <laughs> yeah. This is the side tangent of the side tangent. But uh, we, we have to laugh while we can this episode because it gets so much more serious. Um, the... So I was, I was going I, I was going to go run today and I was like, OK, what do I have? Oh, shit. Most of my stuff's dirty. So I just grab uh, one of my like my last exercise shirt, my last pair of running shorts. And I throw gray on my exercise shirt, shoes. gray, gray shorts, gray yeah. shoes. And know, then from his perspective, I, I didn't think about it because I had to squeeze it in in order to make it so that I can make it for this and like eat food and like make the cocktail and everything else. And even then I had to push it back a half hour. And so while walking there i looked down at my clothes and i noticed that i'm wearing this like uh how would you describe that like teal it's like a like a neon almost neon teal let me look at neon teal yeah um like it like a neon teal ish and then i'm wearing bright orange fucking pants and like safety yellow shoes (laughs) no okay okay i thought you were talking about the shoes the the shoes are just straight up like acid green yeah the picture that you sent. Okay, so the picture that you sent me. The shoes are just acid green. The pants are so red that you can't distinguish. They're actually orange, for the record. But all right. So in the picture you took, there are they are so like red or orange or whatever that you. It just looks like a blob. You can't distinguish any of like the the folds in the material or anything <laughs> like that. It just so looks true. like somebody took in MS Paint the red like. <laughs> picture and just started drawing on the picture um it it's insane it's absolutely insane how bright those pants anything like i can't imagine those pants look good in with any other shirt like straight up like i don't i can't think of a situation where those shorts look good um you can maybe you can see yourself from outer space so like (laughs) They're safe if you're running on the street at night. I originally night. got them for running at night, but yeah. Okay, yeah, they they, <laughs> they do that job well, Crossland. Um, and then it, it's, the shirt is reasonable. It's not reasonable with those shorts because it's green. Mm-hmm. It's green on green with, with purple highlights. It's your Iron Man Santa Rosa shirt. And it, mm-hmm. mm, I'd say like a light olive would be the color. Yeah, yeah, olive's light, right. I said seafoam. It's definitely olive. Yeah, more like light olive. Um, can I can I ask you a question about your colorblindness? <laughs> fucking um, you, what? <laughs> can you tell when colors look good or bad together? No, not at all, dude. <laughs> like that's, a, that's a, I don't know if you've ever like previously have really like paid attention to what my closet is, but it's oh, mostly neutral tones. It's not good. I just can't tell if you literally can't tell or you just don't care. Oh no. It's a it's a can't tell kind of a thing, um, but then like I I will notice and I'll be like oh that's probably really offensive to like people's eyes like thinking about colors and like well I know that like yellow and orange are definitely a no go like you don't I feel like <laughs> yellow and orange are fine eh, shirt pants I don't know <laughs> well okay Who, yeah. which one's the shirt and which one's the pants because I can't I can't say I've heard of <laughs> yellow or orange for pants. <laughs> But so so genuine, genuinely, like they don't stand out to you, like just being gray, different shades of gray. They don't stand out to you as like clashing colors or anything like that is more what I'm asking. No, no, not really. Um, Not like immediately. So it's one of those things where like brain doesn't assemble until like I look in a mirror and then brain is like, is this good? And then 
I have to like moderate based on how I've heard people react to different color combinations. <laughs> so, so you you can't tell yourself. You no, I can't know discern what, it. You just right. you just know what people think. Correct. Based on what <laughs> just, we make fun of you for. Correct. <laughs> I've just pieced it together is. over a long enough timeline. <laughs> <laughs> it's all you have some. I have some pictures of you with some fucking horrendous outfits. I loved those light teal shorts, man. <laughs> I loved those teal shorts. Um, but but truthfully, that's why most of my like color palette palette is like blue, red, gray, and you have like, like baby blue sweatpants. A yellow. I did have baby blue sweatpants. You had for a long baby time. blue yeah. sweatpants that you'd wear with like a neon orange shirt. Yep. And it was the most horrifying thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it was, man. Hence, those, those pants didn't go well with anything. Well, they didn't I look mean, good alone. They were sweatpants to like hang out in. So that's why. <laughs> All right. Done ripping <clears throat> on your, your fashion sense. Let's, uh, let's continue. With that deleterious sidetrack. Um, Hopping back in here, the the deconstruction of the Duke of Hands through the repeated mind wiped interviews is just fucking incredible as a concept It being derived from the pandemonium chair that Octavia had built, of which we've heard referenced once before. It's all just fucking gnarly. And I, I love how this like slowly unfurls and keeps your eyes on the page because you're like, wait. How does Virgin wait? Why does she wait? Why does he why can she like predict? And they're like just like little tidbits that are tipping you off to the idea that she's already done this a couple of times. And you're like, how would she have done this a couple of times to him? What? How does that make any sense? And just the applications of this are like theoretically limitless, you know, like fucking wild. I kind of wish I would have written like notes on this the first time I read through it. Because I, I remember being really confused mm-hmm. and then reading it a second time when I'm like going through notes or third time, I think when I'm going through notes, I'm like, oh, this makes total sense. Like, this is understandable. This whatever. But like, I, I wish I had captured my like actual initial reaction on all this because like, what a fucking terrifying way to interrogate somebody. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> To just interject in with exactly their train of thought. It, it, what, it's, what, oh, man. What makes it even worse is that, like, it, he has been, like, kind of looking forward to this day in some way because all of these speeches are memorized. And, yeah. like, he knows exactly what he's going to say. And he knows exactly what he wants to tell these people who have treated him, you know, treated him poorly before and now, like, still have, like, left him out of the, you know, collective mm-hmm. circle. And that's why he went into crime, of course. And like, fuck, like this is supposed to be like his moment and he is being broken by something that he doesn't even understand or believe could exist. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a little bit of a trick because she's already had these conversations. Mm -hmm. Right. Talk about being intimidated by somebody's intelligence. Mm -hmm. Like this takes it to an entirely other level. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is devious in like the truest sense of the word. Like manipulation at such a high level but she's not manipulating him she she is straight up trying to intimidate oh yeah interrogation manipulation i mean they're similar she's manipulating him to like yeah i i guess i guess at its core you can call it manipulation but i don't know i i think there's a 
there's a distinction there that could be made, but I'm not uh, well-versed enough in their distinct definitions to be able to do that. So let's continue on. Y- yes. Yes. <laughs> no. Do you, do you know what? I, she's not trying to like, she's not lying to him. She's not trying to trick him into giving additional information. She's just straight up intimidating him, trying oh, yeah. to throw him right. off his game. Yes. Yeah. After figuring out the game from the first like run through. Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, man. And the chapter ends as the Goblin of Mars is well on his way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he is shaking in his boots. <laughs> as he, he should be. At the beginning of the next, like, at in chapter 27, Virginia Pack, um, he is fucking shaking. He's like, no, 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 no. This is not. You can't do that. You can't do that. I have rights. <laughs> like, just the idea that being talked to by the goblin is a violation of rights. Is. Wow. Wow. The I'm terror. a citizen of the Republic. I have rights. And I, I like I like how her response is, we'll see what he thinks about that. <laughs> it's it's just such a brutal way to, like, end a chapter and then start the next one where he's, like, just absolutely shaking. And we've, no, like, very little has shaken this dude across two different books now. And yeah. it seems just, like, kind of melt. Yeah. Yep. It's really funny. I yeah. I got so much satisfaction off of that. Mm-hmm. No doubt. It's, it's, a, it's a great scene. So I... I really I love the scene setting as well that happens between Virginia and Severo here with Pebble communicating between the two of them. The whole like Wolf Spain tea, him slipping down because of a joke. You know, he's like, I fucking love that. You know, <laughs> it's fucking great. Um, and I, you know, I miss the Mad Goblin in a way. It is also interesting though to consider that seeing Severo from a different point of view is is a very different experience. What do you make of kind of the Howlers chat over tea and coffee and the Severo from Virginia's point of view. Well, I, I, I think first of all, I have to say that I found it fucking hilarious that he described tea as tea, uh, coffee, but with piss instead of coffee. Um, <laughs> personally, I really like tea, uh-huh. but that's a great descriptor. That's hilarious. It's it, not accurate. Like it's completely different, but it's fucking hilarious. Um, though I have had some really, really, really bad tea. <laughs> before so i can see how that could happen it kind of reminded me just a little bit of uh ted lasso and he's like nope that's exactly what i was thinking about that's exactly what i was thinking about this is not good at all no thank you (laughs) (laughs) totally uh yep that is precisely the scene i was thinking about when i was reading this perfect i think this this entire scene the coolest part about it was the fact that it showcased the Howler's ability to really conceal their numbers. Just Severo's shadowy tactics in general. Like they had 25 people up there in the rafters and you couldn't see them at all. But seeing Severo from Virginia's perspective was, I don't think entirely that different than from Darrow's perspective. Like you, he wears a, he wears himself on his sleeve. I don't know if he has a heart, so I can't say uh, he wears his heart <laughs> on his sleeve. But um, he he is pretty genuine to who he is all the time. It's just the uh, <laughs> the affection or lack thereof of the narrator <laughs> is what changes. So uh, she, 
I don't think it's fair to say that she doesn't like Severo as a person, but she is not mm. fond of him like Darrow is. Yeah. Yeah, not at all, right? Like, she has a very... She's she's only beholden to him because of him being the godfather and the best friend, Darrow's best friend, really. Uh, definitely, like, tolerates him and has liked him at times and moments, but it's very clear that... Especially at the very beginning of the last chapter, even like, oh, how like how wrathful you are. Great work, Severo. Like you're so <laughs> it's it's there's just something so witty that she says right at the beginning of that that I I fucking adored. But yeah, I th- that relationship is just so, so great. Um, bravo, Severo. You've done you've outdone yourself. Your wrath is so legendary. <laughs> and, you know, kind of. It is, though, because <laughs> like, the Duke of Hands is shitting himself in the other room. And, like, as as this scene goes on, we'll talk about the rest of the scene, of course. He is, like, literally continuing to scream, like, please don't do this to me. Stop it. Help. Whatever. As we, like, only later, like, interject where several, like, walks into the room and they turn on the sound in the room again. And he's still, like, talking. He's been, like, talking to himself this whole fucking time <laughs> in the other room, panicking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It's it's great to see several back. It is, to me, it's it's very different to see this side. Not so, not only just because of Virginia's impression, but also the way that Severo treats other people that aren't Darrow. <laughs> that was, that was my other thing where I was like, that's interesting. Yeah. A little different. A little, little bit different. So Virginia always, always poignant, of course, says something that stuck with me in this struck with me in this read. Oh, so we're making him a monster. So you feel better. I said, Pax is in danger. Race back and rescue me because I'm not actually the most powerful per- person in the Republic. I need my husband. Boo-hoo. Weak and helpless I am. Pax needs you. And Dara replied, Pax who? <laughs> and I find this particularly brilliant because it's it's post kind of the the sort of commentary about Thistle um, with with kind of the who's that because it just like drops out of the back of his head. I found it particularly poignant because... In the same way that Severo kind of ignores or like it's falling out of the back of his head, there seems to be like just a, a little acorn of truth with Darrow, I don't know, like seemingly not ignoring his son, but like choosing to stay for the war, right? Like, I don't know, it's it's tough to kind of like point po- point directly to, but there's some degree of honesty there that I find. I mean, the whole thing is mm-hmm. very, very sarcastic and jokey, of course, from Virginia's perspective, but... Yeah, there, there's a seed of honesty to it, but mm-hmm. that's not really how I read this entire passage. It, all I got was sarcasm because of the the connection to what was just said about Thistle right yep. before this, like Thistle who? I, I assumed it was entirely meant at a as as sort of a poke at Severo's inability to, uh, not inability, his... his tendency to just drop people's memories when they cross him entirely like that person doesn't exist to me anymore so mm-hmm. that that's what i got off of it it was more of a, a jab at that rather than anything truthful but uh, there there's clearly some truth to it so i don't i don't know how to read it entirely so yeah so to, like still trying to figure that out totally so that that jab right that we get right there um at um 
Darrow in particular with with and about kind of packs to me given the context of what we just talked about with Severo being like Severo has basically forgotten it's out of his mind and he no longer cares kind of puts Darrow in the position of like oh so Severo you think that Darrow like doesn't care about his son but like and I'm not saying that Darrow doesn't care about his son but I mean he has priorities (laughs) (laughs) and um You know, that's that's also kind of like used against Severo in that way. It's kind of armed against him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It makes sense. That that comment, of course, like spawns a common argument and discussion that we've had over the course of Iron Gold, over the course of this book, and that we kind of pointed at last week a little bit that Virginia believes Darrow's decision to be the correct one and thinks Severo the fool for abandoning his post at his side. And he takes serious serious offense at the idea that he made the wrong decision to come back to save Electra and Pax yeah um it it comes about later on in the chapter but in in subsequent reads this feels a little bit hypocritical later on she talks about how she like basically she'd do anything for her son and husband I think I think the actual quote is the only thing that matters is my son husband and like Friends or something, something to that extent. We talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's in the notes later on in the chapter or in the section. Um, but condemning Severo for choosing one person over millions that are at risk based on like what he could have done to keep them safe if he had stayed. I think that's a bit of an unfair thing to put on somebody. It it makes sense. In this context, and to a certain extent, it makes sense entirely. But at the same time, what's like who? Who is she to call him a bad parent for this? Like, not necessarily a bad parent, but a bad person for being a good parent is essentially what she's saying. I don't know. There, there's some irony. There's some uh, hypocrisy, and and there's just some coldness. I mean, clearly, clearly some coldness, but. At the same time, I completely understand where she's she's coming from in all of this. Yeah, I, I just want to I know we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, of course, like like you kind of mentioned. But um, when it comes to the analysis of like her caring about like the only thing that she cares about or one of the few things that she cares about are her friends, her husband, her child. I don't I don't necessarily find it directly hypocritical because she is exerting her power the best that she can to solve the problem while also taking care of all of the other things, right? So to me... Uh, so so for, for an exact, like for a direct example of, of why it's not hypocritical, I guess is something that gets brought up, I think in this chapter again, is the, like we, like we have the separation of Darrow and the Reaper, we have a separation of Mustang and Sovereign. So I, right. I think that's probably what they're going for or wh- how we can draw a, an example I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there's 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 definitely a distinction there, but I think that Mustang has a clearer Virginia Mustang the sovereign, whichever way we want to say it. Virginia has a very clear grasp on who she is, I think for the most part. Severo does bring it up, of course, and you know, kind of gives her throws throws the title back in her face. Um, but I think that she is doing everything within her power to do the right things. And I think that you know, let's just theory craft for a second. If Victra is already turning over hell and Mustang is also trying to work to do the same as with with her resources, 
it really wasn't all that necessary for Severo to come back. Yeah, exactly. But entirely like, and it took him months. Yep. And, and what I, what I want to just clarify here is that the reason that I think that it's more irresponsible on Severo's side of things is because he's abandoning, and this is probably because he doesn't feel as beholden to it anymore, but he is abandoning his role as a leader inside of the Republic for this. Right. And so he has already, and we'll talk about titles in just a moment here, but he has already abandoned Ares as a title. And so he's, he's feeling less and less beholden to kind of the goal as it wasn't, it was, it was kind of his inheritance to be Ares, not, not something that like he asked for uh, by any Mm -hmm. stretch or any imagination. So it's, He's in an interesting quandary as far as a character goes. Yeah. Is, did he ask, like, was it, it was bestowed upon him, but he could have rejected it. He did accept the role of Ares. I, well, he totally did it out of necessity, I think, because part of that was his dad just got killed. Darrow was in the box. Darrow was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Darrow okay. was gone. So it was like, fuck, I have to kind of a thing. Yep. You're right. Um, Forgot yeah, Darrow was in the box at that point. Yeah, yeah, Boxy Darrow. Oh, poor boy. Oh, um, poor, poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, poor dude. Yeah, but yeah that, I, I think uh, that that really trivializes it a little bit. But yeah. no joke. The dereliction of duty, though, I think is a really big a big thing to point out with uh, with Severo, like just kind of stepping back from leadership because he was he's been doing a lot of this as a friend to Darrow more than anything else, not because he necessarily, you know. Um, he believes in the Republic, but he, he will not give everything for the Republic, it seems. So so we, we've been talking a little bit about this before, uh, but and we've kind of made mention of it, of course. Severo really kind of puts it into words and it fits with our kind of themes of nicknames kind of taking hold in our characters identities. He, he kind of he says that you are now you're you're the sovereign. You're no longer the Virginia that I know. Um, and Severo is kind of abandoned. His, like we had kind of mentioned, in terms of Ares, while the uh, two of our other main characters from the original trilogy have kind of been subsumed by theirs and their newfound responsibility to the Republic that they've founded. Uh, what what do you make of kind of nicknames, the themes, how that ties into the series at large? So, obviously, Severo has a couple nicknames. There's Ares, which he's abandoned, um, or at least stopped using, which is the same as abandoned, I guess. But Goblin has been used a little bit more and more lately. And that really hasn't happened since the Jackal and Fitchner died. Those were really kind of the last two that really used it. Fitchner being the one that bestowed it upon him, which is fucking hilarious. But I, I think there are sort of a couple main to- main points to make about nicknames. And uh, sort of stemming off the primary ways to come about them there's uh earning them and maintaining them or embracing one that's been given and continuing to let others use them so as an example reaper it was earned through like just kind of his brutality within the institute and he continues to prove that brutality and prove that like faction of himself it's basically become another personality of him at this point mustang on the other hand wasn't really earned other than the fact that she kind of rode a horse one time and darrow saw (laughs) her do that like Mm. (laughs) that's that's where that entire fucking thing came from the first time he saw her she was riding a horse and now her name's mustang for five fucking books 
<laughs> but she seems to like it to a certain extent and lets people continue call her that. Continue to call her that. Pebble, Screwface, most of the rest of the Howlers, that was kind of in the same boat as Mustang. Ares was bestowed upon Severo, so that's kind of a different way to go about it. But he kind of stopped, stopped pursuing what it meant to be Ares after the Republic was formed, so he doesn't really need that nickname anymore. He doesn't, Ares isn't necessary because they're not trying to overthrow the government anymore, basically. So he, he, he didn't like the name Goblin, so he kind of fell out of favor. But at this point now, he kind of earned the name Goblin because he's acting like a creature from the night, sort of. So, like, nicknames seem to be kind of a subtle but important aspect of this book, more than a, more than the previous books. And it's kind of cool to see those come to come to fruition a little bit. They make a little more sense. They're a little bit more into, integral into the story. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, I think that that's a fantastic breakdown of all of kind of the origin points of the different nicknames and how how they work. I guess like my maybe maybe the reality is here is that like Severo is really just kind of putting into words the sort of actualization that a lot of our characters have experienced being in these roles now for a decade. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Severo is one of the few that's kind of escaped that to some degree. I mean, he's much more of a family man than A, I would have ever anticipated. And B, you know, like his his role as a goblin, as the leader of the Howlers is definitely a big deal, but not not necessarily focus number one. Focus number one is family for him. So which is cool. Like, that's a super cool thing to see. Yeah, especially for Severo. So i know we were uh just uh just talking mad shit about him abandoning his leadership position but yeah but you know <laughs> he had a good reason i think still st- still disagree but it's a good reason right right at the very least he's got some semblance of you know a reason for why i love that mustang just kind of knows everything she's got it all worked out she's a genius and it truly shows and shocks the hell out of everyone every time her internal monologue is just so fantastic as she starts to work things out ahead of other people um i I think a big example of this is later when she figures out about publius before anyone else does in the room as several like kind of slowly constructs it but she she kind of reminds me of like an emotionally competent spock in a way you know like if Mm -hmm. spock could hide his emotions as opposed to just being the brute force instrument of truth that he is so i'm going to agree with you but at the same time i'm going to try to poke poke a hole in that a little bit she came to the conclusion of publius faster than anybody else but that was after making a false accusation of dancer like she still makes mistakes too which is fine and may like makes her human like she's not infallible but she is incredibly intelligent which very hard to say otherwise, you know, like Mm -hmm. she talks about being the most intelligent person in the universe. And, uh, she's right. I think that's one of, one of the few times where it's not entirely just dripping with egg, uh, arrogance when somebody says something like that, like she's genuinely probably the most intelligent person in the solar system. Yeah, yeah. And like like you said, like that doesn't mean that she can't be wrong and that she doesn't make mistakes. You know, it's important to point that out as well. But she is mm-hmm. definitely, definitely right there. 
it's yeah hmm. good point right. the this 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 chapter just has so many things in it but the way that this chapter ends with sort of the visualization of memory that happens from the psycho spike we we see gorgo the right hand of the queen of the syndicate the the queen herself kind of obscured by locusts and then the reveal that dancer has something to do with the duke is just fantastic and awful and we kind of spoke a little bit about this technology earlier, but he he ends up being wiped. Of, we know his name is Faustus a little bit later, which is also interesting because the Faustian bargain, right? The whole whole uh, other concept. What do you mean, right? Like you say that like I understand. What? Wait, what? Faustian? You don't know what the Faustian? Oh my god! Okay, so uh, the <laughs> Faust Crossland. Jesus, we so, have discussed this. You are the one that understands the historical shit. Okay easy easy explanation faust was the person who wrote this originally but the the general concept of a faustian bargain is really that it's just the deal with the devil right so you trade something of moral or spiritual importance um such as like your soul or personal values for something else in the world so you trade it for something worldly so his name being faustus is interesting because he is a very compelling individual in a lot of ways, but he he also literally loses everything here, you know, so like it's it's that it, he, it's just funny that his name is also Faustus, considering that like he is on the like opposite end of a Faustian bargain. Like he was powerful for a time just to be, have all of his power and identity stripped from him. OK, if that makes sense. It's so the name's a little bit ironic. It is. Yeah, but. but Make me feel like a dick for not knowing that cross. No, I mean, I'm so sorry. Um, didn't, didn't mean to apply that at all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just his entire being being wiped out after extracting his memories being just fuck. Fuck that. Wow. What? Yeah. Yep. I mean, good for them. But mm-hmm. d- did you have feelings? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just like. No, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna shut I, up because Crossland I, insulted me with the Faustian stuff. Yeah, Oops. Yep. Uh <laughs> the the entire like refinement of the pandemonium chair in general. Mustang is one of the only people I would trust with that sort of power. And I, I, I think she kind of understands that that's based on her her knowledge and her intimate relationship with Octavia who developed this technology with the pandemonium chair. She's the only person that I can think of that wouldn't use it for just corruptible reasons or, or just straight up fascist actions, you know? Yeah. Like her, her ability to, to break down the Duke of hands here is God. It could be easily, easily argued that it is a breach of, of like, Oh, this is human rights. You know, this is a violation of human rights for sure. Yeah. No question. And she's the only person I trust in this entire series to not take that lightly. You know, Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a fun problem (laughs) to dissect later. Well, it's only more fun now that like the end of the, this chapter, right. With like, Oh, Mustang's probably not in charge anymore. <laughs> All these tools probably exist. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 
fuck this book. I love it so much. Fuck this book. I love it so much. <laughs> As mentioned, though, when I hit chapter 31 for the first time, I literally like read it and immediately like put the book down for six months and then picked it up, reread the entire section up to that point. I was like, all right, now we plow forward. I think it, I don't think it was six months. I think it was three, but it was a while. But still. <clears throat> mm hmm. So with that, we move into the only other character chapter <laughs> in this entire thing. We're going to talk with Ephraim for a little bit and uh, chapter 28, Karachi. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit. But like, I, I'd like real Karachi cards. I'd like a real Karachi game, please. Somebody, it seems poker like, but, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah, it seems. Stonemaier I, Games, I got, where's my I got Karachi? the feeling like it was mostly just, oh, Jesus, I need to restate that because i tipped a can over i got the feeling that it was mostly just like blackjack mm. with the counting yeah. cards concept and everything like that i i'm assuming yeah. it's just blackjack with a different name sure who knows but if that's like actually true five hand hold like there there was some like weird terminology about like your hand and hand size and stuff like that that's true yeah so maybe maybe there's some more distinction to it i i'd love to play it sometime but I don't know. I'm I'm pretty sure it's mostly just blackjack. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But so Ephraim's training of the Skuggy is Squiggly. going about as he anticipated. Skuggy, Skuggy uh, is going about as he anticipated it would. You know, they they can't fool a fucking lie detector. Uh, but how could the Obsidians be expected to? As Ephraim himself like kind of points out, they called most of the intellect out of the Obsidians over the last 200 years. How did they think it was going to go? And what'd you kind of make of the whole thing? That like, what whole... did you think was going to happen? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I, I thought it made a lot of sense that they wouldn't be able to lie in general. None of them were subtle. None of the obsidians that we've ever, ever interacted with have been subtle. Like mm-hmm. they've been intelligent though. So like there are certain facets of their intellect that have been sort of called, but I don't think their intelligence in general has been completely obliterated. That said, using a card game that a lot of them find to be intoxicating, for lack of a better term, makes total sense. God, it was such an ingenious move by him. Oh, yeah. And then and then pairing it with actual gambling, like actual like stakes. stakes. Yeah. Solidifying the, the lesson and making them actually focus on it made all the more sense. I, I love the way that this was handled. I... <clears throat> really really appreciated a lot of the kind of commentary and even the internal like jokes that Ephraim had and I think that it was just kind of it was a fantastic chapter that got to highlight a lot of Ephraim's humor but then also like show what he could bring to this kind of group right I also want to bring up something I actually think that I spoiled something for you I think literally last week uh which is it's, it's a tiny thing that gets explained this week but I think I said that we know that wise in um, Nagal means or Sefi quiet is both quiet and wise. And I don't think that's explained until right here. Um, so whoops on my part. Honestly, if you did, I comment on it last time. You're like, no, that's a great observation. And I was like, yeah, thanks. yeah. You know what? It made enough sense that I didn't really take notice. So, yeah, but it, it's really kind of given a little bit more context here. 
Um, but we also like get a good time with Ephraim and Pax connecting, talking about the training sessions, as well as revealing that Ephraim did some legwork to get him access to a garage where he can work on a, a bike and do things that he enjoys. What do you make of like their budding friendship and his decision to let him keep the responsibility of bearing the ring from Trig, the engagement ring? So I, I think there's some real growth specifically from Ephraim, but from both of them, um, like just trust and actual friendship. They seem to understand their situation that they're in right now. And Pax is really kind of smart enough to understand the motivations and the lack of choices that Ephraim had in the kidnapping and the choices he made to go forward and kind of try to keep them safe and bring them back, even though that's not what happened i he's he's trying to rectify his actions and Mm -hmm. pax seems to understand that this wasn't out of malice towards him this was ephraim for all intents and purposes was kind of a caged animal when he was dealing with uh with the syndicate yeah yeah he was definitely restrained in terms of what he could do and now it's kind of interesting because he gets to breathe a little bit more like you said caged animal yeah Hmm. good call I, I love the kind of the gambit around the cards that Ephraim makes to expose the liars of the group. I think was gambit. fascinating. Yeah, I know. I I actually fun fact, I wrote that into the into this like little question prompt here and I questioned it, I rewrote it, and then I was like, gambit is actually the perfect word. And this is the correct word, so I decided to stick with it. <laughs> but with like the fitting punishment, right? For for Freehild, um free Freehild? Free Freyhild? Freyhild, probably. Where she had to go like do two thousand obsidian breaths in the bleeding place and that she's like deft in all things and was taught by screw face in the way of the cards. I love the kind of refrains that build around her as this sort of superior scuggy. She's she's just so Squiggly. so interesting. Just Imagine using the name Screwface as like a revered <laughs> name for anything. <laughs> I don't know. I find it. I find it funny. As far as the deft in all things, like aspect that they they definitely like repeat as almost a mantra, like you mentioned. I found it hilarious when Ephraim used the term "deft in some things" instead. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, as a it, it was a jab. I don't know. It was. It was, it was funny. Perfect. Though. Was it deft in some things or deft in most things or deft in it was it was some. Yeah, you said it was right. some. OK, yeah. And I, I thought that it was I thought that it was really particularly funny because uh, Goodkind is the guy who's kind of saying that repeating that refrain. And he is he's kind of an interesting character in the way that he kind of like feeds into Freyhild's like ego a little bit. But she doesn't like believe that she's right all the time or that she's like the perfect one, right? So like even when Ephraim directs like the good at some things at her a little bit later, like she doesn't really react outside of being like, oh, you think that I'm good at some things. Like not she's more she takes that as a compliment as opposed to sort of the reverence that she was given by the rest of the obsidians. Which, which I think is, is- interesting. Is kind of strange because she's the one that calls it out as like she's the one that's pointing out to everybody when he's being sarcastic or when he's being um, mm-hmm. rhetorical. Well, she's reading him and stuff yeah. like because she understands those things and he's trying to teach them to him. So I, I'm curious if that was more of a deflection. Like I'm not going to address your insult. I'm going to uh, take it as a compliment because you find me deft in some things 
I felt um, like that was in private though, and it was just the two of them or three, like whoever was left after. Either most way, of the regardless of if it was in private or otherwise, um, I, I'm curious if she understood what he was going for, because mm. I think she probably did and just yeah. stepped on it a little bit. Yeah, fair enough. Playing Karachi, the card game here with Xenophon, I think is fantastic, and the insight to use it as a training session makes it even better. Like you said, right off the bat. And the way that he's like truly lecturing them like a class and utilize utilizes his humor so well. I also <clears throat> it's it's worth noting, of course, that there are few examples of um, they them characters inside of novels um, and stories. And I think that Xenophon in a large way is a, is a great like representative aspect of that and kind of the, the moving um, trends, not the right word. But the sort of the growth that this shows it with with a lot of whites and everything else and kind of a, an interesting question there, especially in the future, as these kind of things continue to expand and gender being identified, fluid, whatever. Uh, but also to simplify this a little bit, Goodkind, which we talked about a little bit, reminds me so much of Drax from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Like they they briefly mention like hobbies and he's like, yeah, like people have hobbies and whatever. And he's like, ha, my hobby is horse. <laughs> It's just like I totally I can just imagine like tracks patting someone on the back and like shouting something like that. Just fucking perfect. Drax Drax is a great call out there <clears throat> that. Yeah. Yep. Very reminiscent of that. That mm. that is uh, that's a good call. It makes total yeah. sense. You addressed a lot of the, the learning stuff earlier. So we'll uh, we'll take that one out. What do you make of Xenophon's tick about blaming Osgard for the move to the all tribe? Um, I think it was a. Sort of nice, subtle way to reinforce Ephraim's skill set. It, it sort of points out that it was the same. He he points out that it was the same tick that he noticed when he had bad cards. Yeah. So so beyond just the implications that it makes about Xenophon, it it gives not construction, but uh, yeah, reinforcing. I think reinforcing is the only really good word for it. Um, it reinforces Ephraim. And his character and his intelligence and uh, really the skills that made him the choice for the Duke of Hands to to conduct this this heist on this kidnapping. It really proves that he knows what he's talking. That was my biggest takeaway from it. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that he he knows what he's talking about, but he's able to read people so easily and so consistently. I mean, the way that he kind of cleans out Xenophon is also hilarious. Mm -hmm. Entirely. (laughs) And Xenophon just has this belief that Ephraim is cheating and they they check all the common things. And it's like, nope, I just know how to read you. And Freehild is the one who also recognizes that. And it's man, what a what a great moment. Yeah, that and uh, he he takes Xenophon, I think, for for a shit ton of money and like mm-hmm. his cloak. And he uh, gives the cloak back, but also lets him like win back or lets them win back. Or was it was it Freehild? That that he let win back uh, the money that they took. Freehield, yeah, won back the money. So, Freehield yep. won back all the all the, and it was clearly like he he saw through the 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 bluff and let them win anyway. What do you, what do you think of uh, Freehield and the training that's occurring with the Skuggy right now? I think my favorite part was the ending conversation after the training where she talks about the skill gift. Like what he's doing is teaching them and teaching their entire people how to take back what was taken from them the last couple of centuries just their their intelligence and their understanding of the world and how to operate in a way that is independent and 
he he's really bestowing upon them their their intelligence and their de- independence which is touching it's really touching and it's really kind of a cool way to to translate these skills into something that's actually important for their entire people yeah i i love that i love i love that idea and we we kind of we talked about it a little bit um last week with kind of the way that the other colors kind of worked themselves in and taught the skills and like handed it down and it feels like obsidian's in in a large way are almost as well-rounded as golds are in some capacity like modern golds that modern golds i don't think are perfect but it sounds like the obsidians are trying to gain enough of those other skills and like you said it, it feels really real and natural especially yeah. when you use the term skill gift you know they're learners right. and they're they're <clears throat> deft at it too they're deft in all things deft in all things <laughs> uh this chapter ends with a conversation between Pax and Ephraim about insurance and an escape plan. And, you know, last week, I think we talked a lot about Ephraim and kind of not thinking that escape might be a good idea. But it appears as though he's an af- as afraid of, like, running away as we thought at first. So I don't think he's afraid of anything. I think um, okay. I think he's very, very adaptable more than anything else. I, I, I think on top of that just based on his training and his understanding of the world in general and all the, all the things he's been through, he is going to be always looking for a way out of whatever situation he finds himself in. But he's also at the same time going to be become content in making a place for himself. Basically until he sees a chink in the armor, like if he's held somewhere, he's going to work, work, uh, work with what he's got and, um, be comfortable as much as he can. And then as soon as he sees a way out, he's going to try to exploit it. Um, I think this is just kind of who he is. And I think this uh, makes total sense that he's going to yeah. sort of pair off with packs and uh, figure out a way out. I think a chink in the armor is a brilliant way to describe that. Like he's always looking for that weak point. He's always, always on the lookout. Mm hmm. Love that. Chapter 29, Virginia, the dust of reverie. Might I say, A, I love this title. B, I love the reference to the title throughout the entire chapter. And C, this entire like overture in this chapter of the dust of reverie is one of the more poetic things as we think about memory and loss and like reflect on that throughout this chapter. I, I adore that just kind of right off the bat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to to kick off like memory loss and, and sort of reverie, I, I really enjoy the scene in Pax's room with Deanna. I think it's a really brilliant moment and has some fantastic writing. It's it's a fly in amber, the rooms that remain. Deanna is so right in that way. And Mustang, you know, also like just kind of tagging into that. This is the only character that we've ever seen from Mustang's perspective or otherwise that she's like really bowed to in a way ever or like cowed to, you know, like. Mm -hmm. But I fucking love that idea of like it's like a fly in amber. Like that's mm, chef's kiss. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, this section also mentions that Deanna is 50 years old, which we we already know her age. It's been mentioned before, but every time it gets brought up and anytime any sort of Red's age when they're talking about how old they are gets brought up, it's like it, it, it's always surprising to me how old Red's seem as they age. Mm-hmm. My dad's older than 50. Your dad's older than 50. My dad right? actually just turned 50. OK, your dad is 50. Uh, he's yeah. Yep. Anyway, 
they don't seem like decrepit old old men. No, no, not at all. And uh, here's Deanna, fifty year old, just ancient one, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, right. They they said that like thirty five was old. Remember, like all the way back. Yeah. Like yeah, she's. She's made it in part because of like the the station that she has being, you know, Darrow's mom and in part because of what the rising has done to, you know, liberate and help Reds. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, did you have any other thoughts on sort of the idea of like the those like kind of time capsules of people lost or gone? The the fly trapped in Amber? I mean, I, I think there's there's a comment on it from Deanna from uh, about Darrow. I don't think his room is kept exactly as it was. But, like, something about his boots or something were, like, maintained as, like, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something about either Darrow's boots or her husband's boots or something like that that were just kept. While while a lot of the rest of it was sold and, like, you had to feed yeah. Darrow, of course, at the time and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't off the top of my head remember exactly what was spoken about, but I think she completely understands and they have the means to continue just keeping this room unused. So, like, why wouldn't you keep that spark alive, keep that hope alive that he's going to come back and fall back into place? And- yeah, yeah, especially when he's not that far gone. The trapping and subsequent conversation with Dancer is a fantastic one that reveals a lot of information about this man who does not make it outside of this week. I find virginia's honesty in almost all things like just so refreshing as far as motivations go because she's nothing if not incredibly honest with these people right here in front of us and that is it it's comparatively to like darrow there's like a degree of like he's always playing his cards carefully and she is playing her cards carefully but she's also she's just so on top of everyone else's hands that like she doesn't even worry about the cards that she's playing for the most part right she she has lot. some of the greatest virtues of anybody in this book all around. Mm-hmm. She's kind, she's honest, she's just when it's warranted, she's forgiving. Like and she's apologetic when she's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like she she is exemplary in all things that are are good, which is such a cool character to have when they're also real. Like she, she, she has flaws. She has emotions. She has, there is a reality to her while also maintaining all of these great virtues, which is just such a well done character. That's hard to come by. I think. Ah, yeah. I love it. I adore, I adore her perspective. Her point of view is just so refreshing. Like you Mm -hmm. said. Yeah. Mm. So presenting, of course, to Dancer, the Duke's memory of intimacy is just a terrifying prospect for the man. But even what's even more shocking is the fact that Dancer thought that this was going to be blackmail for his sexuality. I really appreciate Virginia's internal tone here when she goes back through the trauma that the gold's forced upon the other colors in the form of sexual suppression of the reds and has this kind of like sympathetic response and just kind of the whole like all all of those various traumas being visited it was like you almost like wanted her to go like no 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 that's not that's not what this is that's not what this is uh that's not what we're trying to do but yeah it's man it hurts Mm -hmm. um first of all fucking heartbreaking Mm -hmm. like 
absolutely heartbreaking. But also, can you imagine this scene, like this interrogation scene in in film? Mm-hmm. Or on totally. TV? Like it, this would be such a well done, high tension, high tension, high tension, high tension. What the fuck are you talking about? What? And just <laughs> dropping it. And it, it's still, it's still tension and it's still serious. But the, the release of the, um, accusation of treason essentially is not, I don't want to call it comical, but, but it's such a re- release intention that it almost feels comical. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. It's such a, it's such a well done beat. Um, I'd love, I I'm so excited cause I'm assuming this will get translated into film. We've been talking about this for fucking year. It, I, it's gonna, I hope it does. And when that happens, I'm excited to see this translated. Mm-hmm. This this is one of those those moments inside of the series too, where it's it's just so clear that Pierce is such a deft writer. Uh, this scene, to kind of the deft point that you're making, things. deft in all things, uh, <laughs> reminds me. Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> reminds me a lot of um, Better Call Saul and, and like Breaking Bad in terms of the way that like you'll have you'll have like scenes set up or Ozarks or or what have you, a number of like dramas. Um, where you'll have scenes set up where like three characters know something and one character doesn't and you're like just waiting for like they're all thinking that the thing that they know that the other character doesn't know is going to get brought up and then it doesn't and you're like mm-hmm. oh shit finally this this is that right it's that same yeah. sort of tension and it's just perfectly executed but yeah. yeah also very very heartbreaking as far as everything else goes with yeah. dancer and um like losing like having his dick manhood burned off and just everything else like that's just fucking awful and atrocious from the reds and ultimately like virginia internalizes that and it's like the gold it's technically the gold's faults because like they instilled these values but yeah um the fact that mickey was the one that brought it back was kind of a cool yeah it's a cool backstory and um Lens lends some um some paint to the unpainted picture of what happened before Darrow. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Like how did all these people get connected? How'd this all come to be mm-hmm. before Darrow? And uh I don't know, it, it it brought some depth there. It was really cool. You know, like not knowing what we know at the end, it's it's so fantastic to get this like burst of character from Dancer and learn so much about him pre-rebellion and like thinking about um, Fitchner and everything else that kind of happens at, at the very end of this. It just it's so upsetting that then immediately a, two chapters later, the man's dead. You know, like we, we get all of this kind of rich backstory. And it's like, oh, man. I remember why I liked this character. I remember why I believed in him. And uh, then you just get your soul fucking dropped out. All right. I need to not talk about it until we get there. Um, <laughs> uh, so I told don't you, respond to that. Uh, dear, dear listener, I told you it would be tough to do this. We, we managed for most of it. Like we, talk about it. What do you mean most close. of it? We're two chapters in. 
Well, no. We're, what? <laughs> no, we're not. Is it two chapters in? Oh, fuck. Yeah, these are really big chapters. We're three chapters in. Uh, but, no, we we're like 26. four chapters in. Yeah, we started we on started 26. 40. This is 29. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or is um, this 30? No, this is 29. Yeah. This is 29. Yeah. Three chapters in. But but when it all like clicks and he comes to realize that he's just been like sleeping with the Duke, now realizing that it was in fact the Duke that he was sleeping with the whole time is is just a, a fantastic realization, kind of like we said, um, that kind of like gambit. And the fact that like Severo just like is kind of working it out in slow motion with him is fucking hilarious. Cause like Severo's kind of it feels like Severo's kind of slow in this situation, but he also doesn't know how to handle it. And then the line which is also just so him the he, he literally fucked a terrorist i can say what i want it's just oh man i mean oh no first of all like severo's never been one to change what he's going to say after reading a situation <laughs> and second of all he constantly refers to him, himself as a terrorist warlord in in like mm-hmm. the, yeah in the original yeah yeah in uh, morning star i think Yep. Like, right. That's what he calls himself. He's a terrorist warlord. So, but you know, his, his point is decent enough, (laughs) but the fact that dancer didn't know that he was the Duke should kind of lighten the transit transgression a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think think. he's guilty of anything. (laughs) No, he's just, no, terrorizing the man for the sake of terrorizing him because that's what he went to do and that's the that's the track his mind is on that's the track his mind is on yeah definitely and i i totally agree with you i think that's a a perfect read on the this situation there it's just like fucking severo what a what a crack what a what a case what a head case (laughs) um and shortly thereafter it all becomes very clear publius is allied with the queen of the syndicate and all I have to say is you didn't see that one coming, did you? What a fucking dick. No, I didn't see it coming. I should have. I feel like I should have. I feel like it makes complete sense. Everything about that makes total fucking sense. But no, I did not see that coming in the slightest. Every every time Publius was in a scene, I made a big deal about him being the incorruptible. Like I was like. I was hard selling it and wondering if you might pick up on it as being oh, no, like too I, aggressive. Was, almost, that was but, in my mind too. I was always yeah. thinking about it. Like this guy, he's like the Varus of, of the Republic, mm-hmm. but he's actually like certainly good. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. Jesus. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, fuck. <laughs> so, uh, it only gets worse yeah. when we actually get to the chapter. We've only got, of, we've only got all five the, or six mark. Of all the things that I've called, this one feels bad that I didn't, you know? Yeah. Like I, that's I, fair. I feel had. I don't know. No, such a great reveal. Such a great turn. Mm-hmm. So, so, so well done. I'm Honestly, I am happy I didn't call it. Because it it made my experience reading it so much better. Yeah, it's it's just such it's such a moment in so many different ways, and boy, boy oh boy, there's only only more chaos to come. 
<laughs> but a, that's an understatement <laughs> well you've also got like 500 pages left in the books and it's like what the fuck happens yeah that's a good you point <laughs> yeah yeah this is like this is how golden sun would have ended you know is with something like this how many pages is red rising like 330 i think something like that three okay yeah, like so we're in the so we, we're in the final act. Yeah, right. We we are in the final act of the first book. <laughs> so the the speech that Dancer gives at the end, talking about Fitchner, like I said earlier, how he was harmed by his own clan for his sexuality and all the damage done, really, really yanks at the heartstrings, especially knowing about that impending fate again. Uh, but I I love the fire that this wakes in him and sort of it, the way that it arouses him to be like, no, fuck that, fuck them, they suck. We've got this. We and he feels like that soldier that we met so long ago at the beginning of Red Rising. Yeah, this really kind of shows his pride in everything that's happened that he's had a hand in, like finding Darrow specifically and heralding him as the 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 hero of the Sons of Ares uh, from the jump all the way mm-hmm. up to the creation of the Republic that they find themselves in, like. He was integral to a lot of it. And um, yeah. th- this shows how how much that's affected him in a positive way and how, how proud he is of what he's done for, for the world, for the solar system. Yeah, which, is- which, I mean, he absolutely deserves that praise. Oh, for- entirely. All right. With that, we move into Chapter 30, the Virginia Ocular Sphere. I love kind of the the visual image right off the bat and kind of the well, I guess it's not right off the bat, but I love the vid- visual image of this ocular sphere as we go through. Um, but the, the chapter really begins in earnest with a meditation on fate and legacy pertaining to Nero and what he taught Mustang. And she also reflects, of course, on, on Octavia and the other Furies, as well as Lysander in the mind's eye in these moments, kind of thinking through kind of the the idea of legacy on the whole what did would you make of this internal reflection that you know that she's kind of inherited from the sovereign and her father and the path that she herself is forging i think it's it's pretty interesting she's meditating on the wisdom of her father and its juxtaposition with the insatiable thirst for power that he had Mm -hmm. and there seems to be a little bit of fear here since she isn't quite able to understand the source of the disconnection between the two, she's thinking maybe it's kind of possible for, for her to fall into the same traps that her father did. I don't know. It's not super explicit in that way, but that's kind of my read on it. I think there, there's some like, clearly that's what she's thinking. Like there, there's the, uh, the hesitation and the, the thought that, She's reassuring herself. I, I can't, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but she's reassuring herself that she has these differences in thoughts, but who knows if her, if Nero had those same thoughts, you know? Yeah. There's, there's like a brief moment where she's also talking about Adrius, where she's like thinking back and like the family madness, um, which kind of gives me the, you know, Targaryen madness sort of energy about it. And and she's definitely like thinking about that. I think what's so interesting is that she points out that her dad was that Nero was right in most of the things that he said, but not in most of the things that he did. You know, like he he had great lessons, 
that he gave her, but he was not a good example to follow. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was a great of, analysis of... Of course that. he's not a good example to follow. Well, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, but yes, absolutely. I think um, we talked about it earlier that she she is able to parse the the good aspects from the bad in her family mm-hmm. and what she inherits. Yeah. So definitely just reinforces that a little bit. Yeah, she's again the smartest living question mark person <laughs> in the. She is a person solar system. <laughs> uh, she's a, a meat bag. at the very least there's a little bit just at the end of that page as well which also calls out to meditations the way that she calls these kind of tokens of her inheritance from octavia and reduces them down to things like what they are at a very base level marcus aurelius does the exact same thing at, at a point inside of meditations where he says that it's important to remember that things are simpler than the codification that we give them or the way that we kind of sell them to ourselves so that wine is just rotting grapes the the meat of a feast is just dead cow and vegetables that have been cut and it's sort of like the sort of reducing what she has down to the minimum helps her kind of keep it in her head and keep a level head about her status, I think, in a large way. And I think that that's an interesting read on, like, the way that she thinks about, like, Lake Selene. She's like, this is just a house. Like, this is just the home that I live in. This, this is just a chair. Like, the the whole, like, morning throne is really just a fucking chair. Like, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. But all of these things, in theory, were supposed to make a difference. Right. I think earlier I, I made a point, comes from this section, about her... What was it? It was about the hypocrisy of her condemning Severo for coming um, to save Electra, being one person. Um, And this is that quote that all that matters is my son, my husband, and those I love and know and who know me back. And like I mentioned then, it's it's kind of Mustang versus the Sovereign and like what the difference is. And it's a different person. God, this is... So this... Well, I, I mean, that's that's reinforced by Severo calling her that, saying that um, something along the lines of I, I believe in Mustang or I trust Mustang, but you're the sovereign like that. I, I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't know that that's a little little beyond what you're asking um, or a little bit a little bit removed from what you're asking, what you're talking about. Um, I do. I do love that sort of minimalization of the situation that that marcus aurelius kind of heralds here yeah it's very reductive yeah and and it it brings perspective to things and it lets you see the forest from the trees a little bit Mm -hmm. which is something that clearly needs to happen to a lot of people in this story (laughs) right But it's fitting that like Mustang has kind of worked out that equation, you know, yeah. like she she is already around that when a lot of the other people still don't recognize those things like Darrow fucking come on, dude, like figure it out. Yeah, fucking figure it up. <laughs> I feel you there. I, I think that just to kind of poke back a little bit at the Mustang sovereign thing. And I know that Severo is kind of saying that and eventually Mustang at the very least sells him on the idea that she is also the sovereign. I the concept of her 
power feels like it really enhanced her personality more than it did than it like warped it if that makes sense versus like darrow's split between the reaper and darrow feels a little bit more like two fully different personalities mustang it just feels like it's a it's a souped up version of her because of all of the responsibility and power that comes with her her sort of title and authority Mm -hmm. and given like several can interpret that however he is i just want to make sure that you know yeah. Yeah. No. You know? You yeah. know. So Severo and tens of thousands of troops are prepared for the coup de gras on the syndicate, ready to destroy all that remains of its infrastructure and pull out, as Virginia says, the chief weed, the queen herself. They're certain that the queen is on Earth and that on in old Tokyo and that they'll be able to rip it out and take care of that wound. This chapter has that fantastic kind of like bristling energy where you want everything to go right and you believe it's going to because Virginia almost never fails. And you're just like you're you're pushed through this whole thing being like, fuck, yeah, we've got a plan. We're going to execute the plan because that's the way all the rest of these books go. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, Most what a lucky time. day. You know, <laughs> oh, the, the chief weed shows herself pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely exposes herself real right fast. for the picking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus, <sighs> man. Uh, oh no. Oh, oh no. We're almost there. <laughs> almost there. Almost. Uh, also, I, I forgot to mention this. Liam got his sight back. Yay! Yay for Liam! Woo! Yay for Liam! <laughs> I'm assuming that he got Lyria's eyes. <laughs> is <laughs> still alive maybe we and don't Victor's, know that i mean victra's got her so mustang assumes that victra disposed of her already she says I that in right. this yeah. section yeah oh boy oh boy but liam's okay that's good liam's know. okay and he can see all of the colors unlike you true facts jesus <laughs> We also finally, since Iron Gold, see Kavax again for the first time. And what a wonderfully, beautifully mad bastard he is. I, I love I love the division between his public face and his private face that Virginia immediately points out. And which is part of the reason why, like, Severo is ordered out of the room is so that he thinks that, like, Kavax maintains the sort of mad persona with him. And I, it's, it is so fucking fantastic like i can't i've been swearing a lot this episode cannot elaborate how when have you ever apologized for that before it's just been aggressive in the last like 10 minutes because we're it really hasn't it's been like our conversational like amount of swearing fair (laughs) we're we're approaching normal we're approaching the the dive point of this episode so i'm I'm (laughs) getting prepared i guess we gotta get (laughs) we gotta ramp it up we gotta get aggressive my my, my body is hurting um but (laughs) i (laughs) i i really love the division between this like public and private face you know in these moments where it's like his adopted daughter and his son and he's just so kind to her and all these like nice reminders of like how great of a person she is and all of these these different things and the the conversation that Daxo has about like cloning him and like raising the clone and just like the most loyal best person and I fucking love Cavax. Cavax is so good, so good. so 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 good. Um, in this in this like passage, 
I can't remember the exact quote, but um, she has a comment about how easy it is to to think that his strength only comes from his physicality, and like that is nowhere close to true. Like he he is emotionally and mentally and intelligently one of the strongest people in this entire series, but also he's a fucking force of nature physically. So like, yeah, it doesn't hurt. Doesn't hurt. Yeah. The whole like cane joke is wonderful to me, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and thank God he escaped. Uh, oh, Cavix. Oh boy. Oh, oh boy. Did you have any other thoughts on this chapter before we dive into the thing? No, I think we can probably just call it there. Nothing really happens in the next chapter. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I think, so uh, next I think week we just we'll be reading <laughs> chapters 32 through, <laughs> uh, through 37. Fun fact: I actually didn't say the chapters on the last episode <laughs> for the first and only time ever, partially because I was stressed. <laughs> but that's fine. Sorry for the mistake. I should have caught it while I was editing it. Editing it. I didn't. Yeah, it's one of those things where we should dub over when we can. All right. So, um, yeah, we're no, gonna I dis- didn't I didn't think about that. I, I genuinely didn't notice while I was editing. So this um, now the podcast is going to change forms into its final sad form where we are going to now talk about chapter 31, Virginia, the day of red doves. I've tra- I think, I've kept I think very both of us upbeat. have to only talk about this chapter in the form of Gregorian chant. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? I think that will make things a little bit more oh easy to uh, easy to digest. <laughs> you know, I we talked about this just like a little bit right before we we started recording today. But I in the pandemic, I'd started this book back in um, January. I started Dark Age back in January of 2020, and I hit this when I was on vacation for my sister's wedding. I hit the day of the red doves, and I read it. And this weird combination of, like, the joy of the wedding and this, like, very sad moment in the series that I had absolutely adored, like, just hit me so hard that I put the book down and I didn't pick it back up until April that year after COVID had started happening. And I was reading it and I I restarted from the beginning and I was rereading the whole book because I was like, I don't want to miss anything. I want to catch all these details. Um, as I catch back up because I couldn't remember a couple of things. So reread through the entire story, caught back up, got to this point, And we were at that point in the pandemic. It was it was a nice relief from the constant um, sirens in New York City of all of the ambulances driving by because I lived very close to a hospital to talk and like play games and stuff like that. And we we did a whole binge of a TV show called Devs. And it was it was just a fantastic moment. And we then were talking and I was like, you know, I've read like a lot of really good books that I feel like you should read. And you're like, I don't know how I would do that. Like how could we do like a consistent schedule? And I was like, let's just record ourselves like reading books. Like let's talk about it like a podcast. It'll be fun because I'll know the books and you won't. And <laughs> this this moment was what kicked off this entire thing. Yeah, Like this was the moment where I was like, I need to talk to someone else about this portion of the story. And and you decided my illiterate friend PJ is the perfect person. 
<laughs> yes, that's exactly that's exactly. So I did two. We did two warm up books, and then it was like, all right, we're ready to go. <laughs> PJ is no longer completely illiterate. <laughs> uh, yeah, fuck, dude. I've been waiting to talk about this for literally over a year. Like, literally, have been waiting to talk about these feelings and kind of all the things that come from this and the rest of this novel and again team no hype trying not to talk it up but like shit escalates right that's that's the thing with pierce brown it's only more is going to happen it's never less so i figured this would just be a smooth sailing like (laughs) slow decline of of action for the rest of the book like you're saying that's not what happens here like it doesn't just slowly decline from yeah from alice has a heart attack <laughs> I'm just kidding. uh but i mean darrow did true i said that and i was like wait darrow had a heart attack that's not actually that funny uh but but man this scene fucking be serious st- crossland dicks with like, me stop well, it's, joking it's, about heart attack it's it's only about to get really sad. So like this is this is good. Um but this scene absolutely sticks to me like paper and glue. Like it's it's just fucking ridiculous. I, I think about the scene more than I think about a lot of other like entire books at times, because there's just this this sort of overwhelming tide that comes over this entire thing. I just oh, I had to give that mental summary before we before we start. <laughs> yeah well well deserved i think let let the record show we are starting this at two hours and 18 minutes into recording uh <laughs> so virginia ascends to the forum in the senate pit daxo gives a wonderful speech uniting the optimate and also like reining himself in so that he's not demeaning to other people and really kind of shows like a step outside of his traditional character and proposes his resolution that of supporting darrow and the free legions by giving temporary war power to mustang to support the war efforts on mercury yeah this was a beautiful speech mm-hmm this was so, so well done. They they talk about it when Dancer starts speaking about him trying to kind of emulate the floweriness, floweriness of the wordings that Daxo comes up with. And like, that's just not, not him. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's so well done. It's so, I don't, I, I don't necessarily want to say regal, but I think it regal's is, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not pretentious. Mm-hmm. It's not in a pretentious way, but it is sophisticated, but real. I don't know. It's what I imagine a a Roman senator who is truly like in love with the idea that he is representing the people that he loves and the people that he he calls his own, like mm-hmm. as opposed to. A lot of modern modern day po- politics in general that feels so much more removed. This feels so intimate, and he he's eloquent and able to really put to words his feelings in a, in a way that a lot of people can't, myself included, in in anything I do. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I loved the way this was written. This is, and, it, and it's a great sign off. For him as a character, like him, him being remembered as this well-spoken, intelligent, but also just 
we'll get to it later. We'll get to it later. We'll talk about it later. But I, I, this being his final speech is, is so well done. All right. And so it begins with a hiccup. Dancer stands and the urgent message from Severo is being relayed through comms. We find out that there are bone riders in old Tokyo and that it's a trap that that message is cut off by an explosion. Dancer's hiccups begin to worsen while he's giving his speech and then 10 pages of horror begin to unfold. Yeah, this is the point where blood by My Chemical Romance begins to play in the background. (laughs) I'm definitely throwing in that sound cue here. There's no way I'm not. Blood. (laughs) Blood. Gallons of the stuff. Give you all that you can drink and it will never never be enough. enough, So give them blood. 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 Uh, I just fucking... I I reread this so many times, but the moment when Dancer and the Brown Senators and a couple of the Red Senators end up begin like vomiting out their lungs and all of that tissue just coming out of them, pouring out like hot bloody magma is just fucking reviling and revolting. This this person that we've known this entire time that we just got all this wonderful backstory on why he's so important. The one of the arguably three founders or three primary operatives of Ares um, and the the sons of Ares dies and Virginia is immediately blamed by the Vox by Publius Ku Caraval the in fucking corruptible yeah it's a pretty pretty genius play by Publius to call her out as tyrant during the confusion and the bloodbath Mm -hmm. like uh no one was thinking clearly. No one's looking at the big picture. All we see are two sides, like two two sides in conflict being like Virginia and a lot of the golds mm-hmm. and Dancer and the, the Vox Populi kind of being at odds with each other until the night before this vote, which nobody mm-hmm. knows about. So like this riles fucking everybody up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gets even worse when one leader becomes dead, basically, while the other is un- unscathed. So, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, fucking brutal. It's just awful. You know, like this this moment with Publius really kind of points to his character being actually a far more incredible political character than we ever would have anticipated like we've we've seen him for two books now and he has been selling this fucking lie to us cold in the face and we had no questions about it no questions this was the honorable dude he stood up for virginia and the opinions in the previous book even though he eventually ends up on the wishy-washy middle line after um dancer gives a speech but like there there's just so There's so much here to believe that he only wanted the best for people and he's he's sold that public face to borrow the little bit from Cavax and his private face is far, far different and it all goes to hell. 
everything is under attack. The everything wardens have hell. turned. Everything goes to hell. It's all it's all on fire. So the, the wardens start killing the line guards. The arch imperator Zahn turns the ships against the Augustan fleet. The just the coup. It's a coup. The coup has gone live. Is is it the wardens that are standing in the rafters and instead of intervening, they just walk watch. out the door? Yeah, watch and walk out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I, I couldn't remember if it was the wardens or somebody, some other force, but no. Yeah, the wardens step out to start attacking the lion guards. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. yeah, there's uh, there's so much coordination. <laughs> it's kind of staggering. Like, <sighs> there, there's there's a crazy amount of just the amount of coordination that has to happen here without somebody being tipped off and everything toppling is crazy it is so i can't tell you how frustratingly clear all of this is when you like reread the this like virginia like all of craft up until this point right and when Mm -hmm. you when you like go back and you start to piece together things that were going on in iron gold it is like iron gold we, we've talked about Red Wedding Syndrome quite a bit on the podcast um, of late between a couple of different shows. But Red Wedding Syndrome is when people don't properly set up moments to like give payoff when they kill a bunch of characters or when they do something very dramatic that upsets the status quo. This was an entire fucking book of setup to get to this moment and Darrow's moment and Lysander's, which happened fucking 80 pages ago, three podcast, two podcast episodes ago. Like we've, we've had two moments like that already. Oh my f- God. Just, yep. Yep. It's so well done. Mm-hmm. It's really fucking well done. Yeah. And, and I'm excited and, to go back and reread it with this yeah. uh, revelation. Already it's exposed. just so good. It's just so good. And what what a coup it really is. You know, like a Drakenjager makes mincemeat of the forces on the ground, blowing up pillars and tearing off a, a Grey's arms. They're all gathering around and trying to protect the Sovereign and kind of like lining up in various rows and columns, trying to escape uh, several wardens. Holiday blows open the, that Drakenjager, like we said, and several of the wardens apart one shot at a time with her anti-tank rifle, which is fantastic to see from her, of course, because it looked like she was potentially going to die. Um, the Vox mob, and again, we don't know her fate at the end of this, the Vox mob from the street, as though conjured by Publius himself, run down Virginia as the Optimates tried to try their best to rally trapped in the Senate forum. Uh, Daxo is even trying to lift a wall so that people can like run out, lift a door and just using all of his force and not going to Virginia was never going to make it. And she urges him to escape, but he chooses to stay with her. Mm-hmm. And I just and shrugs after he closes the door. I know. I know. Yeah. Like all, all of it. He's just, he's such a good guy in the end. Mm hmm. Fuck. But um, going back a little bit from what you were just saying, the the Drakenjager, that is one of the most daunting things about this. And the mm-hmm. the fact that Holiday is able to dispatch of them so dispatch of it so quickly, frankly, is insane and amazing. <laughs> what I really want is to see some sort of artwork, be it like a painting or a. Uh, vid like video of some sort or something i just want to see in in some sort of semi-physical form 
Holiday firing upon the wardens in front of this dispatched Drakenjager. Like I, I that would be such a cool scene to see visualized. Like I don't and, know. That's what I want. <laughs> that's all I want right now. Well, and you know, like as as we've like we gave away a copy of the uh subterranean press dark age and they're there are only, I think, f- there are five or six pieces of art inside of the book, and one of them is this, is a shot of the um, uh, Day of Red Doves, of course, but I totally agree with you, thinking back on this. This is a fantastic moment where Holiday is across the forum, shooting, blowing up the Strachanyager, and killing the Wardens as they're running, and we're watching from the opposite side of the combat, and it's just, it's so, it's such a good mental image that I totally agree with you. I, I would love to see a, a rendition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, dude. Um, so, and then Daxo becomes death for four meters, as as said, using the scepter of the Republic, beating his chest with and shouting a name as any respectable Telemannus would. But it's not his own. <laughs> Unlike his brother Pax, or unlike his father calling out his own name as he shouts, but it's that of Lionheart, it's that of Mustang, of his sovereign, whom he fights to protect, and always has for his entire life. I I, I didn't recognize the importance of that, in particular, like him shouting out her name as opposed to the family name like everyone else does until this reunite. It just it hit me like a ton of bricks emotionally. I was yeah. like, oh, shit, that's what he cares about. He cares about this. He cares. Like you said, he cares about in, in the speech where he's rallying. He really cares about the Republic and the society far more than his sort of narcissistic impression gave off. Yeah, entirely. Super, super cool to see. Um. You just said he becomes death, but he also becomes dead. Uh, (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Uh, That said, that said, Mustang's description of his fighting style. um, She calls it something that very people have ever seen up close and how he and Darrow are two of the only people that like can ever fight that way like two of the only people alive that could fight that way was super cool just the 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 idea that these people that are like coming into into the hot end of his razor essentially know about how how strong and how uh brutal gold people and gold fighters are but because they're looking at it through an HC don't really understand how terrifying it is. Like they, they are so unprepared for what gold actually fights like and beyond just gold, well-trained razor fighters like Daxo and like, like anybody, anybody that has been formally trained in the razor, like basically any peerless. God, it just it they just make fucking men's meat out of people. They and, they really uh, do. Yeah. 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 They are they are effectively just a fucking tornado of death. Mowing through people. And like mowing through people, but even that turns out to of course not be enough. Um 
in a very sort of brutal real sense the the component for me that like really does it right like like you said these sort of low colors that are swarming after the tyrant and the the high colors here in the room and the obsidians as well who are allied with the high colors um they are very unaware of reality and i feel like i feel like this is a very particular call out of of a lot of like mob justice as we think about it um on you know if if we extract this a little bit and talk about kind of the the sort of modern reality that we live in this feels like a rendition of mob justice made real right where there's there's no actual understanding of the depth of the position of the people there's machinations going on in the background but everyone's reacting to what was presented to them right they're reacting to you know, I, I can't think of anything at the moment that's not particularly controversial, but, you know, the, the the reaction versus the reality. And I just think it's 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 fantastically done and horrifically rendered for our characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, God, I, there are so many feelings. There are so many feelings to this scene. Mm hmm. Just, just, I'm really curious about Daxo and his, um, his internal thoughts and feelings for Mustang. Cause there, there seemed to be something more there, something more than just a brotherly figure. And they, they talk about where he saved her from the surf early on in their childhood. Like there, there is an alternate universe where where Mustang and Daxo get together and and build a very 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 happy life together. I truly believe I, that. I think so. I totally agree with that. I think that that is kind of a real um possibility. It wasn't necessarily plausible, of course, in in sort of this reality, but I think that there is not as though they were um like pining after each other secretly, but there is a lot of affection that runs deeper than, mm. you know, yeah, right. I think yeah. it makes enough sense. Uh, with that, Mustang is passed over the crowd, injured, bleeding, beaten, looking around for Daxo until she finds him being hacked out with a hatchet until his head dislodges and is thrown up into the crowd by its spine. It bounces around the crowd like an inflatable toy ball, and I deflate permanently. Yeah, uh, God, I swear to God. One of the only things running through my mind, like, I don't know if it's just as, as a means of not thinking about the actual things that are happening here, but my thought was, could a red really have the strength to like hack through a reinforced gold spine like that? Is that, is that fucking possible? And it, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's possible, but, um, either way, fucking horrifying. Next time I see a beach ball bouncing around at a concert, I think I'll. Uh, oh my god! I'll 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 think about this a little bit. I hate that you put that image in my head for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, Tuesday this week, in our city of all of all places, in Waite Park, Minnesota, not our city, but kind of yeah, a right. a weird suburb of it. Um, if that counts, Rancid and the Dropkick Murphys are coming to play <laughs> together. Oh man! Uh, so I hope they bring a beach ball. 
Jesus so. Christ. I can I I can just cry <laughs> for a little <laughs> no while. No one else will understand at the punk show. <laughs> I I will forever be a little bit lost um in sort of the the loss of Daxo here, I think. Because it is just such an absolutely gruesome end. And for a character that we got to know over three books, because he was originally back in Morningstar, he's been here for a very long time. And the the way that the Telemannises and, uh, and Darrow's family interacts, the, the Lycos and Mustang and everyone else, that it's just, it is such... A tragic loss and a brutal one. And I can only imagine the rage of the rest of the family after this moment. I don't think he's dead. I think you underestimate oh the God. strength of the Telemann's family. Hey, you. So to to kind of end the conversation um on the on this We'll, we'll we'll kind of maybe talk some general thoughts after this, but uh, the the final prompt here that I have, of course, is the red who did it. Of course, as you kind of pointed out and speculated, she of course is not a red at all. She is Lilith, the queen of the syndicate, and the chapter ends as the song of Eo cries out from the crowd, having taken having taken the forum and everything that comes with it. Yep. So first of all. I fucking knew she wasn't dead. <laughs> She's too much right of a dick to be dead. Yeah, like, fair. Totally. Um, mm-hmm. That said, even though I, I was like thinking about like how could a red chop through that, I still thought it was harmony. Mm. Like in my, in my like thinking about like what was happening, like it's fucking harmony. Like she's, it's the red hand. That's the, that's what's going on here. Like that's all rolled up into the syndicate. That's not true. And it's way worse. So, mm-hmm. uh, the jackal strikes again, I guess. From, from the grave. <laughs> Bone riders, Lilith, and everything else, yeah. Woof. And who knows what they're doing to, uh, old Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who knows how Severo's doing? Who knows how the rest of the Howlers are doing? Who knows mm-hmm. any of this? Wow. So that's that's it. But do you have any other thoughts that you want to bring up about the Day of Red Doves and or this week's reading? How, why'd you do me like this, Crossland? <laughs> it took fucking a like, year to do you like this. Yeah, this was a slow fuck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> man. <laughs> God, I, I it's so worth it. So worth it. Did you did you peek at the next chapter at all? Did you see who we flipped to? Nope. We go to Darrow. Nope. I I saw I saw that it was like when I was reading, I saw it was a blank. Not it was like kind of a yeah, semi blank page, page, and I yep. like put my hand over it to make sure I didn't see it. Mm. So I don't it know what the title is. Is it Darrow that okay, we start it's, with? It's yeah. Darrow. I did not read the yeah. I actually didn't know it was Darrow, so right. I also right. didn't read the uh, the title of the chapter, so I know nothing going. Yeah, forward. I was I was just curious if you uh, if you flipped because wow, what a cliffhanger to leave on, right? Like, I mean, I didn't have to flip at all. It, it 
Well, I, left yeah, side I is I mean, like, is end of the chapter. Right side is correct. The new chapter. Blank page. So. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. any other thoughts on this? I'm. Hmm, there's a lot. There's a lot of thoughts. I can't put them to words right now, and I I will I will dissect them in the next episode. I think with context of what's going what goes on after because there's just a lot of dangling strings of like, well, where are they? What, what happened there? Like stuff like that. So sure. I don't think so. Okay. All right. So with that, we move into your predictions here, PJ. So with that, your first one here is, is Mustang alive? And you say, no. And the howlers use her insides as hiding places. <laughs> <I hate you. laughs> so so just this does harken back to a comment that pebble makes earlier in the section of uh i think uh i think somebody asked like oh it, it's mustang it's it's when she drops down from the ceiling before severo does and they say how you doing garbage deal or like she's like garbage detail better than dead horses i suppose Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, now there's a dead horse potentially. Wow. All right. So, uh, <laughs> second question, does Electra share the same enthusiasm for Ephraim as Pax does? No, no, I don't think she does. I think, um, I think she entirely distrusts Ephraim wants absolutely nothing to do with him, but I think she does trust Pax and, um, uh, she'll go along with anything he says. And uh, whatever the plan, the two of whatever plan the two of them concoct together. So no, I don't think she trusts or has any sort of enthusiasm towards Ephraim, but she will be cooperative as long as Pax is the one kind of pulling the strings. All right, that makes sense to me. So, mm-hmm. final question of the week is does this act by Lilath and the Bone Riders bring Darrow home? You also put in marks here, uh, great band name, by the way. <laughs> Lilith, Which, Lilith yeah. and the Bone Riders is Lilith a great Lilith and band the Bone name. Riders, yeah, totally. You can see that on a marquee. <laughs> yes, I think it is. I think this is a dire enough of a circumstance. I think this is this is enough of a circumstance that it will shake the core of the foundation of the Republic and might actually completely rip it asunder and i i think for that reason daryl will see it as be, beyond just saving his wife or taking finding finding a way to take revenge on the death of his wife i think i think this is a big enough instance that this is more important than anything else that he could be doing okay mm-hmm. all right man Love that. Love those. I I know that last week I actually promised that we would have uh, fan questions. We have them next week. It was actually after this one. Um, Something that we are also looking at doing in the very near future, because we're starting to actually record these in the same week that they come out a little bit, is do kind of questions like review questions. Uh, One that I would pose, and I'm curious, and, you know, if you guys provide answers, we'll uh, we'll read them off. Uh, Actually, no, that won't work because we're recording on Wednesday this week. Never mind. Uh, Shutting up. It's fine. Next week, we are going to be reading chapters 32 to 37. So we got a solid, I think it's like 50 pages-ish here, but 32 to 37. 
So with that, that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our website, all of our social socials, all in one one easy, convenient spot. Yeah, yeah. And just to kind of shout that out, of course, um, on the Patreon, we have all of the additional bonus shows and content um, going on. We do kind of a live show once a month. We do a, a number of other things that are a ton of fun and highly recommend if you can come hang out with us. That's fantastic. Um, we also want to take a second today to thank our newest patron, Mixologist Big Turk. Thanks so much, Greg. Uh, thank you for supporting the show and what we do here. Really means the world to us. We're stoked, of course, uh, for next week as we continue. Oh, and we we wanted to do something very special at the end of this, didn't we? We wanted to announce what we're going to cover next, right, PJ? Uh, yes. So I got back from Barnes & Noble with a uh, a box set of the Mistborn trilogy. It's still in its cellophane. It's still it's still plastic wrapped. I haven't opened it yet, but that is uh supposedly what I'll be reading after this book. So after we wrap up our Red Rising coverage uh for the five books that exist right now, we are going to be going into Mistborn era 1, so the original trilogy of Mistborn novels. Uh after that, the consideration, we're hoping, of course, we, we can't predict, but we would hope that we'd be able to jump into a Red Rising 6, whatever that book is called, at that point. But yeah, in post, we're going to, of course, cover the comics, as we've discussed previously. But after that, we're going to be talking Mistborn. So that's going to be the uh, the trilogy that we tackle next. So thank you so much to everyone who voted and commented on Instagram and Twitter to uh, help us arrive at this number. It was very close. We will definitely be covering the second place option, uh, First Law, in the future after we finish Mistborn and Red Rising 6, or potentially before, depending on how long it takes for yeah. uh, for the last Pierce is a very slow writer. He's taking He's his time. <laughs> it's okay. I'd rather him no, take his yeah, time. <laughs> absolutely. I'm yeah. Team No Hype, Crossland. Team No Hype. Team No Hype. Right. Right. So, uh, so, yeah, Joe Abercrombie's first law will be after Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn. So mm-hmm. with that, thank you so much for uh, for listening to us cry on the show this week. Yep. Cry with us. 